we're living in the future and it's incredible. Welcome to Breathing Flames, the tabletop gaming podcast from IslayTheDragon.com. I am Wolfie, commonly known on Islay the Dragon as Future Wolfie, because I am a wolf and I am from the future. Two facts, actual true facts. Here with me today are fellow dragon slayers. We've got Alex. Hello. And John. Hello. You know, as gamers, something we like to do is talk about games that we like. And we drew straws. And today, Alex drew the short straw. So he gets to tell us his top seven favorite games of all time. I have to follow up Farmer Lenny's here. So hopefully I can keep up and you won't judge me as harshly as we judged him. Seriously, I'm, but I'm ready. I'm ready to bring the stick. I have a pre. I have the list in front of me, and I'm judging very, very hard. Super judgy. Oh man, I can feel. I can feel the judging eyes already. <laughs> so this was actually a little bit more difficult than I initially thought it would be. Um, I figured there can't be seven good games out there, but uh, <laughs> lo and behold, there were. So I actually had to do a little bit of introspection, look within myself, and it's a as you would imagine, deep and scary place. But once I emerged, seven games came with me. So here we go. The number seven game on my list, my seventh most top game of all time is the newest addition to the list, though not the newest release, is Impulse, designed by Carl Chetik. But I'm going to be talking specifically about the, the Cha-Cha Games edition, recently published on Kickstarter, specifically because it has art by Zach Eidsvug. And if you are at all familiar with Impulse, you might be thinking of the original edition, which has basically what amounts to MS Paint level quality of art. And the new edition was actually a fan remake. He took the same game and all on his own made a beautiful, colorful, vibrant remake. And it was actually picked up by a publisher. And the basic premise is that it's a very, very stripped down 4X game in which you will nominally be doing the four of the aforementioned Xs. And what really sets this game apart is the amount of comboing that you can be doing. And the entire game is based on cards. The map is made on cards. The card will make up your technologies, all the actions you do are based on cards. And what I'm slowly beginning to realize is that Carl Chudik really messes with the way you think of traditional card games should be. And the central conceit of the game is the titular impulse in which players will add one card to the impulse. And starting from left to right, you will do each action in the impulse to forward your position in the game. And what's really neat about the game is every card that you put in the impulse is hopefully so that you can further your position, but it's also going to be used by every other player in the game. You have to think carefully so that the card that you put into the impulse doesn't hurt you as much as it helps you. So have you guys have any experience with this game? 
I have. I remember when it was released, or I guess it wasn't released. It was demoed at Gen Con the last time I went to Gen Con, and I loved it. I'm a big Carl Chuddock fan. And so when I heard he was making a 4X game with his usual concept of cards can do multiple things, I was thrilled, excited to try it out. I had to chase down a demoer. I just st- basically stood around the demo table for <laughs> about a half an hour before a uh, scheduled time. And basically, I, I was uh, very assertive in getting my spot in the demo. And then I eventually got a copy. I loved it, but my friends didn't. So I played it probably probably five or six times. But unfortunately, that's not it's not one that I've had the chance to explore much. That's a shame. I do have mostly you to thank for my recent love affair with all things Carl Chudik. So thank you for that. <laughs> what else have you played by him? Just innovation so far. Oh, that's not true. I did play Uchronia, but that had square cards that didn't have the rounded edges on the on them. Oh. And that's just not right. So I had to get rid of it. Uh, a wise, judicious move. <laughs> have you played this one, Wolfie? I played Impulse once, and it was a long time ago. I think I liked it. It was kind of ugly. I remember that. But I've I've seen pictures of the new edition, and it does make me want to play again. It is in space, which is a big draw for me. Uh, that's that's my thing, and I'm just owning that. But a game in space, and I'm like <laughs> 10 times more likely to play it. I wish that it wasn't billed as a 4X game. Maybe I'm just grumpy and just have a specific idea of what I think a 4X game should be. But I think the mechanics are interesting. I think the fact that there is a board and you have little spaceships that you quote-unquote fly around is interesting. But it doesn't feel like a 4X game to me. It feels just like a strategy game with wonky card play, which is fine. You know, when you say 4X, you have certain expectations. Right. Usually some sort of epic play session. And this is definitely not the case. You can get it through a game in about 30 minutes. And the 4X is there if you think about it. And if you squint hard enough. Yeah, you squint really hard. Um, but really, that's not what gets me. It's all the interaction between the different cards and how you can set up combos. And, and that, that gets me going. And unfortunately, the new addition with the new artwork and the great graphic design and the new expansions is pretty difficult to find. I don't believe it ever hit retail. It just had this kickstarter from a polish publisher that had very little feedback and communication during the campaign and i'm still missing little bags but i'll live with it and (laughs) i'll enjoy the game that i have have you played with the expansions i have not no i've only really begun playing the game in the last month or so but i've been playing it a lot and there's so much, you know, I think every card is unique mm-hmm. in the deck and it's about 110 cards total. So there's plenty enough there for me to explore. I do know there's an expansion that kind of fleshes out the combat, which sounds kind of interesting because the combat can be pretty swingy, mm-hmm. but that doesn't bother me too much because I'm too busy doing so much else. I haven't met a Carl Chudik game that needed an expansion. So you're, I think you're good with just the base. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I picked them up because, you know... <laughs> I had to Kickstarter, <laughs> right? What you do on Kickstarter? Moving on, that was number seven. Impulse. My next game on the list is Twa. This was released in 2010 by Pearl Games, and it has a couple of designers on this one: it has Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier George, and Alain Orban. 
This is also has some art by the aforementioned designers. I don't know how much they did in terms of art, but the artist that I recognize the most and has the most distinguishing art is Alexandra Rocher. This is a very unique theme game in which you are rebuilding a medieval European city. Uh, you are a influential family who is exerting their influence in order to gain fortune and fame and recognition from the nobles. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> in that much, it's very rote and typical of a Euro game. But what really sets this apart is its use of dice. And in the beginning of every round, you roll dice and you have them separated into your different quadrants of the courtyard. Uh, I think it's actually five sections, so that wouldn't be quadrants. That would be pendrants, something like that. Quit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the, the color and the number of the dice will dictate the type of actions that you can do. And every round, there will be artisans that are revealed and you can train your family members to train in those arts you can train in the military arts the monastic arts the civil arts and so on in order to get these special artisans that will further your further your cause and your influence and i just really like the way that it engenders interaction and in that you can actually purchase dice from the different players at the at the board and so I've heard from some rumblings online that turn order is really affects the outcome of the game, because if you go first, you can buy up all the good dice from the other players. I'm not so much of a stickler for balance in a game, as long as I feel somewhat competitive and I feel like I'm pushing my position forward. I'm not going to harp on balance too much, so I can't speak too much for that, but just be aware that that might be there. I do love the artwork in the game. It has kind of this block cutout kind of look it's really quite attractive i think and i do think it actually does a good job of telling the story for example you can train some templars at the uh, monastery and the templars if you hire them can you can send them to go fight off barbarians that are coming to invade and it really tells this kind of interesting story that i think really comes through in a very well-designed package actually i forgot but I have played this game and played it. And you did? It blinded me with its Euroness. Where did you? I played it with you, John. It was a long time ago. No, I brought it to a meetup, but we didn't play. No, but we played a different time. We played it like. like no, we did. <laughs> we played it like Brian's parents' house one time. Or, no. No, I brought it to Brian's parents' house. No, and we, we played Belfort. I re- okay, we I remember play playing Belfort, but I we played. <laughs> however, I can't pronounce the game, so <laughs> Troyes. I'm just going to say Troyes, and we didn't play it before it, but I'm going to say it Troyes. And okay, we'll cut that part out because I, I distinctly remember paying for yellow dice and the red dice, mm. and uh, it's a Euro game. I remember that. I don't know. I don't remember when I played it, but I know I played it. I looked at the pictures and I was like, oh, the little five quadrant thing, the red, yellow, and white dice. Pendrant. I, you know what? I think we might have played it on Board Game Arena. That, oh, that might be it. That might be it. It's hard for me to remember because the way I feel about Euro games is they're fine, but they all kind of blend together for me. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, like this is an interesting puzzle, I guess. But I'm more of a storyline first game 
gamer than a mechanics first gamer. So like the specific mechanisms for converting pips into resources, into cubes, into meeples, into buildings or whatever just doesn't. Oh, you're wrong. There's a story. There's random events that come up. There's barbarians and invade. There's migrant workers come and start building the cathedral before you can. There's a civil war that just causes havoc. Uh, I think there's a lot of story that comes through. You do have to look for it. It's not a story that interests me, though. <laughs> and that's fine. Like, that's not a criticism of the game, but lasers. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I tend to look at what game the story is telling first and say, aha, this game is interesting. Like, that's what makes the game memorable to me. And then hopefully there are cool mechanics to go along with it and make it an interesting game. But it's my own character flaw. But a lot of Euro games blend together for me. It's fine. It's fine. You're allowed to have one character flaw, I guess. So <laughs> it's my only one. <laughs> you can have it. For me, if I were to pick a game that attracts me most in terms of looks, I think it would probably be Twa. I love, love, love the artwork for the game and just the look of it from start to finish. I think it's beautiful. As for the game itself, I like it, but for me, this is one. And I would play it. If someone wanted to play it, I would play it and be glad to. But this is one that I feel like I'm missing it. It does kind of feel like it blends into other Euros for me. (laughs) And usually, I love Euro games, so I don't know why this one hasn't connected with me. You're supposed to be my savior. (laughs) (laughs) You've been betrayed. (laughs) Sorry, I like it. I would play it with you anytime. I I would just always choose something over it. Okay, that's fair enough. There's one thing that I did forget to mention is that the game uses secret objectives. So everyone's working to these cards that are dealt out secretly throughout the game. And actually, these cards will affect everyone. So if anyone will achieve the objective on your card, they will get the points as well. And it might be kind of a cheap tactic for a designer to force kind of interaction or observation of the other players. You know, you kind of second guess, why are they going here? Why are they gaining so much influence? Why are they collecting so much coins? I better do that too. But I'm a sucker for that, for secret objectives that apply for everyone. So this does it as well. And so that's another reason why I really like the game. So that was Troyes. It's pronounced Troa. Apologies. (laughs) Forgive me, please. (laughs) I have no idea how it's pronounced. <laughs> it was closer than your previous attempts. The next game on the list is number five, Patch History. This was released in 2013. The edition that I have is Stunt Kite Publishing, but it was originally a Korean design published by Denko. And the designers are Jung Yun Min and Kim Jun Hyup, with art by Kim Jun Hyup, Lee Yong Gong. This is a civilization game in which you will build your civilization through quilt. So the typical map that you might associate with a civilization type game is replaced by patches in which you will fold into your existing civilization quilt, as it were. I like the concept of civilization games but I don't like the majority of them. I think I've been spoiled by the computer versions of them. The most common one being Civilization. I like Sins of a Solar Empire. These computer games can offer so much variety in unit type, in terrain type, in technology and resources. I feel that board games try to emulate that, but they always fall short 
and I'm always left feeling want for more and more. But in order for to do that, it will just be this huge mess, this clumsy bookkeeping exercise. And instead, I like when civilization games take a unique take on the subject. And if patch history is anything, it is a unique take on the civilization concept. So what it does is it takes civilization and turns it into a quilt metaphor. So in the beginning, you will lay your foundations, your patches will have terrain types. They might have wonders. They might have special people on the tiles. And as you progress through the ages, every time you add a new patch, you have to reconcile it with the things that you've laid in the past. So, you know, Moses is staying there. Do you want to cover up Moses and cast him off into the past? Or do you want to leave him standing so that he is this basically immortal God that is this specter that watches over your civilization. I just really love how it takes your past history and it's a constant presence on your board. Whereas in most civilization games that I've played, you get the new technology and you don't worry about the old stuff. You've moved past it. Whereas if you place a lake early in the game in your quilt, you have to work around it. You have to basically work with it. So that is Hatch History. I played Patch History on your recommendation, Alex, and I love it. I wish that I were able to play it more often, (laughs) just because it, for my group at least, the last time we played it, it took four and a half to five hours. So (laughs) it's not a game I get to pull out often, but it's one that I'm always pining to return to. I've never played it, but I it does sound really interesting, and I, I would like to play it sometime, but I think half of my gaming group would hate it, and... I have a lot of other long games to play. Yeah, it is a longer game. It's not a five-hour game. It's (laughs) probably closer to three hours. So it is requires an investment from the players. But I think it's one that really pans out. And it's just so unlike anything that I've ever played. It has this off-the-wall scoring mechanism in which you're collecting politics points. And then you're basically casting votes on how we're going to score for every scoring phase. It's just so strange. And... I don't understand how it works, but it does. Everything pulls together. <laughs> it's like a quilt that I would have made. It should fall apart, but mm-hmm. I guess I've, I've good quality thread just keeps it together. And it, it's just this really <laughs> off-the-wall civilization game. I don't think it did too well over here, so you can pick it up pretty cheap. So I would highly recommend you can probably pick up a copy for about 20 bucks, And it's well worth that. It's a pretty good production as well, so highly recommend it. One thing that you didn't mention about Patch History is it includes a very brutal auction. Oh, no. I don't like auctions. (laughs) I know. What's so brutal about it, though, is that you pay your bid. Once you bid it, you're paying it, whether you get the thing you were bidding on or whether you get eventually nothing. You either have to outbid or move your bid to another card. And so it's, it's brutal. It is brutal, 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 but it's very cool. Yeah. And like any game, the resources are tight, money is tight, or any good game, yes. the resources are tight and the money is tight. So those auctions can really, really put a damper on you. Mm-hmm. But I think the game is long enough. There's enough time to rebound from a bad auction. Uh, multiple bad auctions, you're probably in for a rough time. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's Patch History. That was my number five game. So the definitive number four game of all time is Agricola. This was released in 2007, designed by Uwe Rosenberg, published by Lookout Games with art by Clemens Franz. I don't know what else I could add to the multitudes of 
reviews, thoughts, critiques that there are out there on Agricola. But this was my very first board game love. Within the first year of myself discovering these new hobby board games, I looked on BGG. Agricola was the number one game at the time, I believe. It looked cute enough, harmless enough. So I plunked down, what, $60, $70 at the time, which I thought was insane. But it turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life. And I haven't turned back since. What else can I say? It's a worker placement game in which you are a, a subsistence farmer in rural medieval Germany. So has mass appeal right there. <laughs> and I think worker placement has been done better since then. What really appeals to me is the card play and the various card interactions that come and tell unique stories in the story of Agricola. And one of the things that I enjoy most in games is the idea of growth. I like to look at my board at the end of a game and see the contrast to what it was in the beginning of the game and see that there was a big change, that I made something happen, that I made something grow. And Gricola is basically the definition of that. You'll start off with basically two rooms in a dilapidated house with a blank field. And by the end of the game, you have this five, six room mansion made out of good quality stone. You have (laughs) pens full of sheep and cows. And I've gone so far as to actually make little clay figurines for every single resource in the game. That's how much I enjoy Agricola. Wow. Wow, indeed. That is impressive. Yes, I will never do that again, but I did it once. (laughs) One of the things that I think I like about Agricola but it's also probably the most divisive thing about Agricola is it is just so brutal. So at the start of the game, you have these two family members and you have to scratch a living from the cold, hard earth. Right. And it's very difficult to get everything done. And you kind of have to do a little of everything because if you leave any scoring category empty, it's worth negative points, not just zero. So at the start of the game, you're looking at the board and you're like, how in the world am i going to accomplish anything and by the end of the game you feel like a high roller even though you put it kindly to say you're living in a mansion but it's it's just you know it's a slightly better hut than you were living in before but i i do like that sense of progression it's just it's a very punishing game which is both the thing i love about it and the thing that i think will turn people off yeah and i can understand having that feeling it's almost like a gamer version of drowning you know you're just barely treading water (laughs) And I guess I'm a glutton for punishment because I kind of like that feeling that you're just barely holding on, that you're flailing, and eventually you're going to be able to reach land. And when you do, it just makes all that effort worth it. Mm -hmm. I think the story really, really, really shines in this one through the occupations that, that you draft or that you choose in the beginning of the game. One of my most memorable moments in gaming is when I played a game of Agricola and my entire food strategy was predicated on fishing. And that's typically not something that you do in a game about farming, Um, but it was all made possible because I had the right combination of cards. Every game differs and varies just because of the different use of cards. How much do you love Agricola, Wolfie? It's, It's been a long time since I've played. It's another one of those games that's just, it's a Euro game and it just kind of it's fine. I don't mind playing it, but it doesn't really excite me. 
I was thinking right when you started talking, I was like, oh, you know, I, I bet Agricola would be a game that I would want to play like with my family once my kids get a little older. They're they're way too young for that now, but you know, when they're old enough to be playing strategy games, like that would be a fun game to have. And then you reminded me that there are negative points and that everything is terrible. And then I'm like, oh, maybe that's not great. <laughs> maybe that's not what I want. It is a moderately complex game, but I've had actually pretty good success teaching it to relatively new gamers. And I think it works in that capacity because everything is so thematic. Everything makes sense. Mm-hmm. All the actions have these these intuitive flows. If you're hungry, you make some wheat. You can make that wheat into bread and you'll feed more people with that bread. I think it really works in that in that way. And I think, well, it might work because I have these little clay piggies that the new players can work play with. <laughs> so maybe that that's uh yeah. an advantage that that's I have. the reason. <laughs> I agree though. I think Agricola was the first complex Euro game that I got. And I remember I cracked the shrink off and then we got this big blizzard in Chicagoland and my wife and I played it nine times in a day. Wow. Yeah. I, I taught her how to play and we just kept going at it. And my wife doesn't really usually like the complex Euro games, but she did like Agricola. And I think a big reason behind that is because all of the actions made intuitive sense. It wasn't just, oh, I can trade these resources for points. It was, oh, of course, well, I'd want to eat that or I want to get bigger farmland. You're rewarded for doing the kind of things that make sense to do if your task is build a good farm. That's true. That's true. You'll hear some complaints about, oh, it makes it forces me to diversify, which I don't have a problem with because I think as a farmer, I would try to do that anyways. Just, you know, that's the objective of the game. And if you're playing towards the objective, well, you know beforehand what you got to do. So I don't have a problem with that. Agricola is a great game. I'm looking forward to the, I think there's like a rumored collector's anniversary edition coming up soon with like a thousand cards. So that sounds fun. It sounds like a big box. Oh, never mind. I don't want it. (laughs) All right, moving on. Oh, that was Agricola, my number four game. And now the undisputed top three games of all time coming in at number three is Three Kingdoms Redux. Appropriate. This is a 2014 release designed by Christina Nzenwei and Yao Kang Leung. The designers are also the owners of the publishing studio that put this out, Starting Player, and has beautiful art by Ray Toh. This is a three-player only game, and it depicts the war between three warring factions in the Three Kingdoms period of China. So each person will play one of the warring factions and you will recruit generals into your army and what will happen as any good war entails is a bidding game (laughs) in the middle of the board are i believe it's 12 spaces in which you will deploy your generals and the generals have different stats and along with those stats each general has a unique ability and you will place those generals into the, to those spaces and try and build up your army and control the borders between each of the warring factions. So what's nice by having a three-player game only, and so you can't play it as a single or two-player game, is that it's balanced for a three-player game. So you're always at war with the two other players at the table, and there's borders between each player. So you're balancing each border 
between you and try and gain control by raising your army. And what's nice about the game is that it depicts war as not just a bloody conflict. It entails your entire society. So you have to keep in mind the economy as well as your food levels. And if you neglect any facet of your society, you're going to have a bad time and you can't do well. Also, when you control the the borders between the players, you also have to pay an upkeep for the soldiers to maintain those borders. So winning a battle can actually put a larger damper on running your society than actually losing a battle. So there's this really clever tension going on there. So that is Three Kingdoms Redux. Of all the games on your list, I think this is probably the one that I would be most interested in trying out. I don't know if I would like it, but it sounds very interesting. It is a surface level war game, but it's kind of a, you're looking one step removed from the actual battle. So there are battles, but that's not the major thing going on. What's really kind of the it factor for the game is the general abilities. And so, as I mentioned before, each general has a card that comes along with them that has a special ability. And throughout the game, as you deploy generals to the border, you actually lose many of those abilities. So there's kind of this nice ebb and flow going on, and you'll draft more generals throughout the game, and you'll lose some generals throughout the game. So you'll gain a bunch of abilities, and then you'll lose some abilities. And there's a really nice flow to the game. It almost borders on unwieldiness in having so many abilities out, and you have to be aware of of them throughout the game. But I think it does a nice balance of sending those generals away and losing those abilities. So I I think it really teeters that line, and it works for me. This is the only game on your list, Alex, that I have not played. And like Wolfie, it's one that interests me. There's an old Super Nintendo game I played called Romance of the Three Kingdoms. I mean, it sounds kind of like that, where obviously war is at the center of what you're doing, but all of the facets of war that you're that you have to manage so resources within your kingdom in this game you could like intermarry with the other factions i don't know if that's part of this but it sounds at least similar to that i haven't played that game specifically but there are a ton of video games that actually deal in that same time period so the three kingdoms period specifically and so i know it's a very popular time period that we ignorant westerners have very little knowledge of well i speak for myself as an ignorant westerner I'm sure you're an expert in in the topic. Um. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is kind of like that. It's not just on the the weapons and the fighting and and the bloodiness. It's so much more to consider. And that's what really sets it apart for me from a typical war game. This is one that I would love to play, but I know that it would be useless for me to buy. It sounds like the kind of game that you have to play many times to get the mileage out of. And I don't think that we would do that. It definitely rewards you for repeated plays as you learn the general abilities. And one thing that also is a hindrance of me being a Westerner is that all the generals use their actual names. So I can't recognize General Chow Chow from General Bao Bao. So I I can't recognize them just by their name. I have to look at their cards. And that's just kind of my Western leanings kind of getting in the way. But if you can get familiar with those abilities, it really rewards that. And another interesting aspect is that it actually recognizes that some of the kingdoms were more powerful than the others. So in the beginning of the game, one of the factions will have more resources while the other faction will have less resources. And the way that it balances that is the 
factions that are less powerful will have an alliance for the round. And so whoever are in the back get an alliance and they can pool their resources on the bids so they can kind of muscle out the strongman. And it kind of makes sense that those two people would align if they want any hope in winning. So it's really smart design. Does make it difficult to play because it's a three-player only game and it is a longer game, two and a half, three-ish hours. But because they put those limits and constraints on themselves, they they were able to make the best three-player game that they quit. Oh, and the worst part about the game is that it comes with this gorgeous art book that's about three millimeters too large to fit in the box. <laughs> it's, it's such a such a shame, but um, it's nice to have. Yeah, so that was Three Kingdoms Redux. Uh, number two game on my list is Tramways. This is a 2016 release, and I believe this is the newest game on my list. And this was designed by Albert Viard, basically through his own company called AV Studio Games. This has art by Paul Lane and Sampo Sikio. This is a train game, basically, as much as trams can be considered trains. Each player will control a color, and you'll build tracks in your color, trying to deliver passengers from point to point, collecting money, and turning those monies into points. That's almost enough to get me to the door. (laughs) You know, I just like connecting dots, I guess. That's always just a fun thing for me to do. Any game with the routes and route building is probably going to have a high chance in something that I like. Uh, it's some instinctual part of me that's when I see two dots, I just have to draw a line between them. And when I can do that in a game, that's even better. So what's really interesting about this game is that it combines route building with deck building. So you have a hand of cards that will facilitate every action that you do in the game. So if you want to build some tracks, you have to play some cards. If you want to deliver a passenger, you got to play some cards. If you want to build a building, hey, you got to play some cards. So in order to get more cards into your hand, you're going to have to go through a convoluted auction to get these cards. So in the beginning of every round, there'll be a a display of four cards for a four-player game. And you're auctioning basically for turn order and pick at those cards. And what really throws a wrench in the system is that every once in a while, there will be these negative cards. And they basically just gum up your hand. They can actually cost you money to play or discard. You're not so much bidding for turn order as you are to avoid taking that card. And I really like it. It's a lot to consider in those auctions. And what's even more punishing is that every time you make a bid, you have to pay immediately. So if you want to start off your bid at one, you have to pay it $1. And if you want to raise your bid to five, you have to pay $5 more. And you can still, through poor play, you can still end up in last place having spent all that money. And that doesn't happen to me often. That happens to one of my good friends. And I just love seeing him suffer, I guess. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good game when I want to, want to rib him a little bit. So basically what I'm hearing is I don't necessarily want to play auction games with you. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm good at it. You want to play with my friend because he's really bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just like these brutal, like Patch History has the same type of deal. You pay your money and you might end up in absolute last. I like when games have things at stake. I want every action to matter to a reasonable degree. If you're just throwing out bids to push up the auction, that's that's interesting to a point. But I want it to really, to really be painful to needle you in the side. 
those are the games that really uh, stick with me. This is one that I think I've only played the solitaire version of this. And I saw the writing on the wall that no one was going to want to learn <laughs> the, hand, the hand management of it. I think, at least from the solo edition and from what I saw that was present in the multiplayer edition, I thought this one looked interesting. But for me, I decided I don't think there's enough room in my group for multiple train games. And so I chose for my group Steam as the game that we would explore. What makes you stick with a game like Tramways? Or is there room for multiple train games in your group? Well, one big deciding factor is that I I really love the look of Tramways. It uses this kind of art deco style with these pastel colors. So it really pops compared to something like Steam, which is brown on green (laughs) on black. Um, So that was a big reason for me for going for Tramways. Um, And that's really the primary train game that our group is focused on. We'll occasionally play some of the cube rail games, which my favorite of those is American Rails. But uh, we don't ex- tend to explore them as deeply as we do tramways. I was looking at the pictures of this game, and before you were explaining the game, and even kind of after you were explaining the game, it reminds me a lot of the the digital game Mini Metro. Have you ever played Mini Metro? I have, yeah. So it does have a very similar look to that. The Mini Metro, I think, takes the look from the subway uh, map design. Sure, yeah. Um, this isn't quite that abstract. It does have some texture to it. So it's not just pure white. There are some abstracted mountain and river textures to it. But I do like that clean aesthetic that it that it employs. I was just thinking about how you said you like you see two dots and you have to connect them. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's Mini Metro. Yeah, that's a, that's a bad game for me. I had to uninstall that after a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at it. I play it every once in a while. And I'm just like, how do people do this? I don't get it. Yeah, so that's Tramways. If you're looking for an off-the-beaten-path train game, I would recommend looking at Tramways. It has a couple of expansions out there that are pretty modular in design. You can just kind of fit them in as you see fit. And I've enjoyed the ones that I've played, and there's plenty of potential for new maps. It is a kind of a one-man operation at this point, so there aren't a ton of maps. So that might kind of dissuade you if you're kind of a map person because there are a ton of maps for Age of Steam and Steam and and the like. I think the different gameplay that comes out of Tramway warrants the look from uh, most train gamers. So again, that was Tramways. And my number one favorite game of all time... I almost hesitate to bring this game up. Because it is such a fragile experience that I know someone's going to go out there and play it and have a complete dud of a game. And they're going to say, what was this guy smoking to recommend this game to me? But it's because of that fragility that I'm going to put it on my number one game. And that's Archipelago. This was released in 2012, designed by Christoph Bollinger. uh, Published by Ludicali. Art by Vincent Bollinger, Ishmael Pomaz, and Chris Williams. So, another unique setting here. You are a European sailors coming from an undisclosed European country. You've come across an archipelago and you decided to peacefully settle on this island and everyone lived happily ever after. Uh. <laughs> archipelago is a colonization game. You land on an island, you're going to Strip that archipelago for all the goods that it has and hopefully 
not incur the wrath of the natives because that is a very real possibility of the game and can be the cause of having, as I mentioned earlier, a pretty poor experience. This is a semi-cooperative game in which if a certain condition is met, in this case, the natives, if they decide to rebel and revolt, then everyone in the game loses. And that can cause people to act very strange ways, very selfishly. And that can cause the game to kind of veer off and just kind of explode and not have a fulfilling end game. But the upside to my cooperative nature is that it pits everyone's greed against each other. Everyone's trying to squeeze every last bit of the island that they can without pushing the game over the edge. In real life, I try not to be greedy. I try to be a decent person. But when I'm in a game, I'm going to be as ruthless and cutthroat. I'm going to lie, steal, cheat. No, I'm not going to cheat. <laughs> we'll strike that. I won't cheat, but I'm going to do whatever I can to win the game. And Archipelago lets me do that. Basically, the game is the best example of a game that I've seen that does exploration as well as any other game that I've ever played. Exploration in this game is risky. Whenever you're going to a new tile, basically, whenever you're going to explore a new region, you pull off a tile from this stack. And if that tile doesn't fit the new region that you're going to explore, you actually have to discard it. So these tiles are double-sided. And you have to decide by looking at the top tile if you want to use that tile or use the second tile without looking at it at all. So it's a little bit disheartening to have a failed exploration, but that's only one part of the exploration. The game also does exploration in the form of secret objectives. And like I mentioned earlier, I love secret objectives. So everyone in the game has a victory point condition, but that's kept hidden from every other player. So all you know is your secret condition and one common condition in the game. So for example, one of the conditions might be uh, if you have the most churches built, you'll get two or three points. And that's the only way that you can score points in the game. So in the beginning of the game, someone might ask, okay, what what do I do now? And often I'll answer is I have no idea because all I know is I have to build churches. I have no idea what you have to do. I have no idea what the person next to you has to do. We're all just kind of bumbling around trying to figure out what we're going to do. So it kind of forces you to explore the game and explore actually what you're trying to do on a game-to-game basis. You're watching each player carefully, trying to see why are they building this market? Should I be building markets? Why is this person hoarding money? Should I be hoarding money? I don't know. And that's Archipelago. I have played Archipelago. I played several times Solitaire, and then I introduced it to my game group and it fell pretty flat (laughs) (laughs) did you guys succumb to the rebels to the rebellion we did not in fact we were not in danger of rebellion the whole time and that's what made it kind of a boring experience for us i don't know if they just were not a very rebellious group in our game or if we were so good at working together that it was never a danger but it didn't seem like there was enough we could do to provoke them into rebellion. And it, it just, as you say, there there's a lot of room for exploration in the game, which is good to some to some degree, except that in a game when you're trying to teach other people how to play, you're right. There was they're like, what should I do? Well, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. You know, like it, it's, it's very sandboxy. It's sandboxy in a way that gives you very few guidelines. Like Agricola is in some ways a little bit of a sandbox. You can build the, your farm however you want, but you still have kind of basic parameters for what is a good idea and what is not a good idea. In Archipelago, it just felt like you were flung on this island. Enjoy. <laughs> and it, especially given the amount of upfront rules learning, the, the experience that we had did not repay the amount of rules we had to learn to get there. I'm curious, how do you raise the ire of the natives? Like, how does that get closer to happening? I have never played this game. I don't know anything about it other than what you just explained. So, yeah, basically, you raise their ire by being as greedy as you can. So, one the most straightforward action in the game to do that is by collecting taxes. If you collect taxes, the natives become angry and their rebellion level raises by a certain amount. Another way that it can raise is if you if you don't have enough jobs for the natives, then they start getting antsy and they start raising their rebellion level. If there are too many goods being spoiled, that can also raise the ire. There's kind of a tech tree that comes up, and some of those techs can also raise their, their rebellion level. Like you can build a pyramid, I think it is. And if you build that pyramid, it raises their rebellion level. Yeah, it's it's referencing the fact that you're building that wonder on the back of slave labor. So, you know, it, it does deal in kind of these darker issues. I don't think it does a completely good job of dealing with the issue in the best way, but it does acknowledge it and you can fall victim to it in the terms that the entire game will will end if you don't do a good job balancing it. So it's there. You should be aware of it. If you're sensitive to that subject, then aware that it's there. But I do think it does a better job than most by at least acknowledging it and kind of playing around with the idea of natives and their unhappiness levels. And so so hopefully that answered your question, Wolfie. The main reason I asked is I've been playing a different game that is semi-cooperative, but it's not very good because it doesn't it doesn't leave much room for you to try and win and also like not lose the game. It sounds like Archipelago has more of a, like you, you can, you can try and win pretty hard. And then if you just screw up, you can lose, but it sounds interesting. The thing that sounds less interesting to me is I don't like hidden goals. I like secret objectives that it's like, this is my secret objective that I can accomplish and earn a few extra points. But I like having very clear goals for how to score points or how to win the game. That's the only real turnoff for me from your description because I like exploring and I like risk and I like games that have that element of like, if you, you want to push it as far as you can, but if you push it too far, it could all blow up in your face. Archipelago also has the interesting aspect that you can play a short, medium, or long game. What's your feeling on that, Alex? Yeah, unfortunately, this is a long game. It does offer that short option, but I don't think the short option is the best way to play it. I don't think it allows you to really establish your footing on the archipelago. So typically, we'll play the medium game. The long game, I do think, is the best experience, but you're looking at a very long time at the table, three hours plus, you know, at a minimum. 
So the medium game, I think, strikes a nice balance. You can play a game in about two two hours is about right. And you get a good feeling of escalation and growth over the course of the game. I think that's what we played. We played the medium game. Yeah, the, the short game does serve a function in that if someone's kind of hesitant to even play, you can say, well, let's just try this out. So at least it's there as an option. But I played it once and I, I already could tell that that's not, I would never play it again. I think Archipelago is a game that I admire but don't like. (laughs) I can see that the designer has represented some ideas in board game form that aren't often represented. And he's done them in a way that is interesting, but it's not the kind of interesting that I want to engage with. (laughs) That's fair. After playing it, I thought, huh, this isn't a game that I want to explore. (laughs) And that's fair. And like I said, I was even I'm almost almost hesitant to even bring it up. It is my favorite game, but I don't talk about it often because I I think it is divisive and it is prone to kind of these fall flat on your face type of experiences. Even bringing it out, I have to kind of gauge the kind of people that I'm playing with beforehand. I'm not just going to show up to the, a new group and say, "Hey, here's my favorite game. Does anyone want to play?" Mm-hmm. I I don't think that's going to work very well. But I do, in general, for the games that I put at the top of my list, I like designers that take chances, that are willing to to go off the beaten path in their designs. I really admire that, and that kind of sticks with me. So I admire these strange and unique designs. They're putting themselves out there, and there's a lot of strange and unique designs that are not worth discussing. And these are the ones that stuck with me. They've hit a chord. They've struck me personally on the things that I like and that I enjoy. And I'm glad to have shared them with you today. Well, thank you, Alex, for sharing your top seven with us. I hope we weren't as harsh with you as you guys were with me. Well, thank you again to Alex for giving us his top seven games. Again, this has been John, Wolfie, and Alex. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Breathing Flames podcast from IslayTheDragon.com. If you like what you've heard, you can find more gaming content, reviews, news, articles, etc. on IslayTheDragon.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Board Game Geek Guild. We have, uh, we're on Google Plus still, for whatever reason. We're on Yelp now. Oh yeah, I think we're on Yelp. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us, if you want to tell Alex that he's wrong, you can definitely find him on Twitter. Um, Thank you so much for listening, and keep slaying dragons one of these days we can just record the outro and then just use the same outro for repeatedly that's no fun we could it actually would be better. it's a little fun it's kind of <laughs> it's funner than the games Alex picked for his top 7 oh I, I actually like <laughs> I know I, I tried and it's fine <laughs> that was that was an interesting list Alex yeah it was, uh, it was actually like I said pretty difficult I had to cut a lot of games that I liked but um, you did it did it yay you got things you like gold star you get a gold sticker now that's just that's the bronze level Stick <laughs>